1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fightback from the week that was. The surge in COVID cases reached record heights to begin the week. An eye-popping 700, a pandemic daily high for the province. Nearly half, 344 were in Toronto, 104 in Peel region, 89 in Ottawa with another 56 in York region. While most continue to be in those under the age of 40, there's growing number of cases in long-term care. Guest host Jane Brown spoke with Zoomer Squad's Bill Van Gorder, acting chief policy officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and Peter Muggeridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine. David Kravitz of Zoomer Media was off.
2: Oh, really, really uh, disappointing and, and and hard to take and, and understand. Uh, the Obviously, we're still not learning uh, six months into this uh, whole uh, pandemic and uh, things are still getting getting worse. CARP is really uh, concerned about it. In fact, we're going to be talking more about it. We've got our, our National Seniors Day event coming up on Thursday uh, and we're doing a webinar for our members right across the country at 1 o'clock and we're going to be talking specifically about how we can protect our vulnerable older people uh, and do it now, not wait till We have to have another pandemic come along.
3: The award-winning story by Alex Roslin on the pandemic's deadly invasion of seniors' homes in the July-August issue of Zoomer Magazine, Peter, uh, details very much what has happened and what could happen again, and the fact that it wasn't all that much of a surprise that COVID-19 just was such a deadly force in nursing homes during the spring.
4: Yeah, thanks. Jay. Um, Alex uh, wrote a tremendous piece, and, and he wrote it right in the midst of the first wave. So he, um, he did a lot of uh, digging with uh, families who'd been affected and uh, spoke to politicians and spoke to uh, stakeholders and CARP. And, and he, he did a fabulous piece. And, and basically, um, it looks like uh, it could all happen again, you know, if, the, if these cases keep spiraling out of control. And it doesn't look like um, the province responded quickly enough to put in changes into long-term care home, like staffing increases or um, protective equipment or infection control procedures. And, uh, I, you know, I hope we're not repeating what uh, Alex researched the first time around.
3: Well, he calls it Canada's hidden shame and how COVID-19 exposed years of systemic neglect in long-term care. Uh, tell us a little bit about that systemic neglect. He references uh, the deadly fire in Quebec where there were close to two dozen people killed. And the killer nurse, of course, Elizabeth Wetlawer was allowed to conduct her murders.
4: Yeah, and, and he, he's, he's um, sort of building off those, both those stories where, um, you know, tragedies occurred um, and nothing was put in place. We, have, we had an inquiry on Elizabeth Wetlawer, but I think I read somewhere that only three of the um, recommendations were adopted so far out of, I don't know how many, but, um, so it's just basically the situation is there. Um, uh, you know, no politician is unaware that it's there. No politician uh, has acted to uh, change it. And, um, you know, um, hopefully this won't be a bad wave, but, um, you know, we're, we're in the exact same situation as we were, Going into the spring,
3: Bill has carp, re- CARP received any information that would uh, um, that would give us the impression that there has been some change made since the spring? Positive change, you know, in in terms of how uh, the system could be improved for long term care.
2: No, CARP hasn't uh, received any information that says there's been any real change. Lots of promises, lots of talk. But back at at that time, uh, as the article says, uh, uh, Marissa Lennox uh, talked about the need to improve the facilities, uh, infection control, inspections, uh, staffing especially. And and staffing is one area where they could have acted uh, and they must act right away. Because what we're now hearing is that staff who, who worked through the first uh, wave of the uh, pandemic are now just totally worn out. And many of them are saying, I'm just not going to do this again. And it means increased staffing. And that just doesn't need a few more dollars in people's paycheck. They've gone by that. In fact, what CARP is urging now is the government take a whole new approach and looking at home care and community care instead of these large hospital-like uh, homes. That's obviously the, the best answer uh, now. There's got to be better access to care in the community in their own home uh, before we're going to really be able to put a stop to this and stop putting so many people in this big uncontrolled
1: facility. The Zoomer Squad, Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. David Kravitz of Zoomer Media was off. You're listening to the best of Fightback. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Not only did we hear about the daily record for cases in the province, but new projections put together by experts at the UFT University Health Network, and Sunnybrook suggest the second wave could peak around mid-October, with a thousand cases daily. They also say enough could end up in intensive care that hospitals will need to scale back non-emergency surgeries. However, the experts are quick to caution their forecast could be downgraded if stricter public health measures are put in place. Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at Ryerson University joined Jane to discuss. We
5: always want to distinguish between a, a, a real trend upwards and just a, a little spike. I mean, uh, the daily rates are always spiking up and down and up and down. But this shows a definite trend upwards. But remember, all the data that uh, that they're using, for example, every case, every new case that's that's, uh, discovered, uh, actually the the infection took place a week or more ago. Every hospitalization is about at least two weeks ago. Every death is about five weeks that the infection took place. So the data that they're starting to work with are all in the past. And so it's actually worse uh, worse than we realize at any one given point.
3: How concerned should we be as Ontario residents or residents of the GTA, which is primarily where we have the infections?
5: Yeah, and uh, we, we should be concerned because we shouldn't be here. I mean, we knew that once we let people out of their apartments and out of their base and back downtown and started walking around, we knew that... People encountering other people would see an increase, but we hope that would be a very, very small increase, easily managed, easily dealt with. But it looks as if uh, we've been a little more careless than that. Most people aren't, but it only takes one or two in the crowd to be careless, and they can spread their goodwill around and we're seeing the numbers higher than we would ever have hoped for. Uh, If this goes on, we might see a second wave that's worse than the first. I hope that it isn't, but in many cases in pandemics, it does work like that. Remember, there are four main dynamics here. We've seen one in action already. That's the behavioral aspect of a second wave. You know, people not wearing the mask regularly or wearing it under their chin or going to parties or or going to bars and so on. That's one aspect, and that's something we can't control. the other three are, uh, uh, are sort of inevitable with the cooler weather. One, we're getting more bodies per cubic meter of uh, indoor airspace as we move in out of the patio and the backyard in inside. Secondly, you've got the temperature as, you're, as the, the air that you breathe out is still really hot at 37, 38 C, but if the rest surrounding air is a little cooler now, say 22 degrees, a big difference there. So your air, with all the particles and bits and moisture and droplets, all raises up higher than it would normally do, floats around before it comes down. So in other words, it's, it moves among more people in the room. And lastly, of course, you've got the humidity. Canadian uh, indoor air is usually quite dry, and if that air is really dry, the moisture around the, dry, the the viruses, remember, nobody's breathing out viruses. All the viruses are inside droplets, no matter whether they're 0.2 of a micron or 100 microns of inside moisture droplets. But if the dry air will evaporate that moisture, meaning that you can get more floating virus that, that lingers for a while. So the mask is your best bet against all of that lot.
3: Have we not fixed enough to uh, discourage this from happening a second time?
5: No, I think I think what we're seeing fewer hospitalizations and serious cases because the average age has now dropped 15 to 18 years from what it was in the beginning. Younger people affected, but they're not as serious as they were. But still, the impact on hospital uh, and health care is the real problem. Uh, elective surgery is going to be down uh, and you don't want to be uh, uh, tying up now with winter illnesses. Yeah. People kind of will be arriving now with uh, influenzas, and, and that's going to be a, a problem with hospitals as well. So we're going to try and avoid that. So again, a quick shout, quick shout out for the flu shot. If you didn't get it last year, get it this year especially above all else. Yes, we are certainly concerned with the impact on any, any of these health uh, uh, health institutions.
1: Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Best of Fightback. I'm Bob Comsick. A new poll suggests 52% of Canadians are very or somewhat confident that the recovery plan outlined in the throne speech will create jobs and strengthen the economy. 39% say they're not very or not at all confident. Jane wondered what the strategy panel, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Bird, make of this.
6: We spent a lot of time talking about what the government might do in the context of the throne speech, whether it might choose to introduce transformational policies, whether a basic guaranteed annual income or, you know, take your pick. And so there are still open questions as to whether a lot of the policies that have been introduced are for the purposes of COVID or if they'll eventually become permanent. But I think in the lead up to the throne speech, and especially at the cabinet retreat a couple of weeks ago, there was a realization that the second wave would soon be upon us and that the throne speech needed to be rooted very much in COVID and in the pandemic and how the government was going to deal with it. And so that was a strategic decision on the part of the federal liberals. And I think you're seeing that reflected in in the results of that poll, which seems to be finding favor in what the government has done.
3: Karen, what do you think about that, the contents of the legislation? Well, you know, I I think, you know, the original question was, you know,
7: 52% of people supported it. And I I think that's pretty consistent with the people who are... um, uh, supporting Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. So, you know, I think that they they think that those are the right measures because they support the government. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, those measures will stabilize income, which is important for people to continue to spend. Um, I don't believe it creates any jobs. And you know, that we are into a dark time. And I, I think that the government needs to be having a plan that, this is going to be with us for the next two years. So these supports are great, but but we have to, whatever we're going to do, we need to think in the context of the next two years, not just the next six
3: months. And John, your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think that I'm not I'm not surprised by
8: the polling. I think that's as Karen says, consistent. I think with with what we've been seeing over the course of the last number of months, and and I do believe that Canadians are still you know very nervous and, and very anxious about about the future. And and you know there was some hope uh, as as we sort of tail end of summer as things were going down, and and, and everybody predicted a second wave, but we're hoping that there wasn't going to be a second wave. But now we're seeing, obviously, that that there's a, the beginning of, of a second wave. And and that makes Canadians far more nervous and, and worried about, you know, is this thing going to end? Is this going to go right through the holidays, uh, beyond Christmas, and, and so forth? And what, what does that mean for their jobs? Because a lot of businesses were shut down, and now governments are getting pressure to shut down, but some are resisting. Um, so I think from that perspective, I think, um, you know, Canadians want to hear, um, you know, governments basically say, uh, as Charles alluded to, you know, have, have COVID on their, on their minds policy-wise and pro- provide funding and, and support as we're seeing the Liberal government do. So as long as the Liberal government continues to provide that financial support uh, and have policies to allow for that to happen, for businesses to, to continue to, to hire and, and to have, have, uh, have business coming in, then I think Canadians will continue to support the government on, that, on, those, uh, on those policies.
3: Let's talk about Quebec and COVID-19, how it relates to what's happening in Ontario. Bars, restaurants, casinos and movie theatres are closing in Quebec on Thursday for 28 days to curb the second wave of COVID-19. Karen, what do you think about that? Health Minister Elliott says we're not there yet, but it's not out of the question. Yeah,
7: you know, I guess I have a different view on it entirely and that the, the current strategy the government has employed to date has been, you know, closing, restricting, um, putting, uh, you know, telling people that they need to stay home and isolate. And, and again, but, but what we're also seeing, I think, you know, everyone predicted the second wave and we're surprised we have a second wave. Well, the reason is because what, what we're asking people to do by self-isolating and closing is, is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable strategy, and we now know, I think, that most of us are understanding this is going to be with us for some time. So we need to, if we're going to close and open, close and open, close and open, that is a death sentence for the economy, and we need to come up with a better strategy for testing, home testing, contact tracing, the things that, that we actually can do in that, that are uh, an alternative response to just closing down, because... At some point, people, they, they just can't live that way. And that's, what, and that's a little bit of what we're seeing, even with, with the younger generation. They're out now um, breaking a lot of the rules because they don't see the virus as being that impactful on them. Right. And so we, I, I think it's really important that we don't just jump into, okay, we need to close down this whole sector of the service economy because that's only going to buy us a little bit of time. It's not a sustainable strategy.
1: Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. This is the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. If you've been working at home during the pandemic, it seems you're not in a rush to go back to your workplace. A new Leger survey finds a whopping 89% of Canadians have found working from home to be a very or somewhat positive experience. And 86% say they're getting used to the new lifestyle and like it. Jane talked about this trend with Dr. John Trogakos, associate professor at U of T's Rotman School of Management, and clinical psychologist Dr. Sam Claridge.
9: Well we've learned that people have um uh really benefit from not having to to be in traffic, not having to be on transit, not having to hop in their car, not having to get up early um they're now at home they can regulate their own sort of behavior they can regulate when they get up they can regulate how uh, how much work that that needs to be done they can also be closer to their kids um if i mean if they have children at home they um so they value all that and 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 it's true about productivity people who are very conscientious about their jobs very conscientious about their careers will also be conscientious about how much work they're doing and um, how quickly they get it done. So these are all benefits. There's the, the odd person who isn't that conscientious, who doesn't care that much about their career, who, value, who really values staying at home because they believe that they can just take it a little bit easier and not have to work as hard and so on, but I think the majority of people really uh, um, uh, really value it because they can really focus on getting the job done and and actually getting it done more efficiently.
3: And Dr. Trugakos, what do you think about what we've all learned over these last six months with working at home? I
10: think, obviously, we're put into this situation uh, not fully prepared, but we did have some experience before COVID with remote work, and then everyone had to get used to it relatively quickly. Um, I think we see uh, some of these benefits, like you, you all have already mentioned. I think we also have to think about, um, how we can support workers to keep them from overworking and keep, make sure that their boundaries are kept. Uh, I know that sometimes people feel, uh, like you're saying, you know, very conscientious workers might feel the pressure to work even more to justify being at home. Uh, but that might hurt productivity in the long run as they kind of deplete and exhaust themselves. So there is still a need for that balance as people adjust, but definitely the benefits um, you know, are there. And one way we can, you know, I'm seeing different sort of solutions to these boundary issues, including things like you're seeing companies, a new company startup like this company in Toronto called Work Mode, where it's a remote workplace, but in people's neighborhoods. So people don't have to go into the office, but they have that space if they need a quiet uh, quiet place to work. So we're seeing new solutions come up. We're seeing people deal with this differently. And it definitely also aligns with data that colleagues of mine and I have collected uh, on the subject as well.
3: Dr. Claridge, once people are given the go-ahead to go back to work, so I'm talking about down the road post-pandemic, do you see, uh, I mean, is it, can you quantify what percentage of people may still stay home or stay home part of the time to work based on the success of this experiment?
9: I'm not sure what the percentage would be. I have a feeling a fair number of people are really going to request staying home. There's going to be those who who are, are going to want to be around their colleagues because a lot of people... Do value relationships, so they're going to want to come in. So I'm I'm not too sure. There may be say 25% might hold back, want to stay at home. Maybe a bit, uh, maybe a bit bigger, like in terms of a percentage. But the people who do want to go back to the workplace are those people who value the relationships, value their colleagues, value the uh, the camaraderie, um, value the coffee breaks, value just reconnecting with uh, with their work environment. Um, but I have a feeling there's going to be I like a fair percentage, as I said, that are going to want to stay home because they're really far more efficient. Uh, they're getting more done. They're able to accomplish other tasks around the house as well. So, um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the percentages turn out to be.
3: The future of work, uh, the future of the way that we will work. I, I'm thinking that the trends are pointing towards, yes, we're on duty 24-7, but we also have control and more flexibility about uh, over the time that we do the work.
5: Yeah,
9: that makes sense. I think that's going to make a lot of people very excited. Because in the past, it was um, 9 to 5, 9 to 6 in the office by a certain time, maybe 8 o'clock, maybe even earlier. Now there's probably going to be a lot more flexibility. There's no question of that. They're probably going to mix days in the office as well as days at home, or maybe working out of the home environment, uh, maybe full time. So uh, the, I think many people are going to appreciate that, and that'll have an impact on people's um, uh, people's lives. Say outside of work, say with family, with with kids, and so on. So it's going to be. So it's, I, I personally think it's going to be uh, like a very exciting time, and. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be very excited about, the, uh, about their new working arrangement.
3: And Dr. Trugakos, final word to you.
10: I think we want to be careful not to say that people are on call 24-7. We want to have those boundaries still as we go forward. They've been blurred, obviously, because people are working from home. But it's really important to keep that work and personal life separated still as much as possible and find ways uh, to do that. So while it does, we do increase that flexibility, we still want to be mindful both as employees and as managers and organizations. Uh, to keep people's personal time to themselves and not bleed too far into, not, not bleed those boundaries too far into each other.
1: Dr. John Trogakos, associate professor at U of T's Rotman School of Management and clinical psychologist, Dr. Sam Claridge. I'm Bob Comsick and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the past week, and many wanted to talk about the second wave, including Debbie in Hamilton.
7: I've been working in long-term care for almost 20 years now, and uh, it's people would be appalled at what goes on in the day-to-day operations. Um. And as far as the COVID is concerned, there's been no changes in in our home as far as uh, more staff. They've hired more, but they can't keep up with the demand. As soon as they bring new people in, people are leaving, moving on to better jobs that uh, pay more. And that's part of the problem, too, is ours is one of the lower uh, on the lower end of the spectrum for uh, paying employees. So. People use our place as a stepping stone for uh, a job that pays more.
1: Rio and Atobico is not overly concerned by the number of COVID cases.
6: Everybody's obsessed with how many cases. I, uh, yesterday, what was it? One or two deaths? That's the that's the important number. That's nothing. There's so many tests now. Like back when we had eight thousand tests, you had six hundred and forty. Now you got forty thousand tests. Seven. That's like. That's nothing like most of it, pe- and then they're always going on about all oh, the young people. Sixty percent are under forty. Yeah, sixty percent of our population is under forty. That's pretty. <laughs> that's nothing out of out of whack there,
0: right? And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who's concerned about messaging around the new visitor restrictions in long-term care.
11: My mother's in the long-term care and I've got a wonderful relationship with the director. She was sending me something and, uh, I, t- I sent her back an email saying I'm very confused. I get this from, you know, they have their, uh, uh, their bulletins that they send, and I said, I get this, I get that, I get the other, like, where am I? So she wrote back and said to me, we are going to consider you an essential caregiver. Yeah. Uh, you fill out this documentation, and, you know, you'll be able to come when you want, as long as you want, as often as you want. In the interim, I had been speaking to a social worker, and I said, you know, it's driving me a little bit bananas, because my mother's got dementia, and uh, I don't know if she knows who I am in sunglasses and uh, a mask, <laughs> it was like it's been a while. Right. So she said to me, You know what, Helen? You're not the only one. Every single home, every single person I speak to who has someone in the seniors' home, ha- and the homes could even be de- owned by the same companies, they're all different. No two homes are, tr- are um, interpreting what they're getting from the government in the same way. Oh, so it is mass confusion.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or, if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Compsy. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest. The Best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zee Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.